0: Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, April 22nd. I'm Andrew Walworth. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is all over the news this week. On Wednesday, the Florida Senate passed a bill that would end Disney World's status as an independent special district, meaning the Magic Kingdom would have to bend the knee to the state government in a host of important ways. The move is payback for the Disney Corporation's very public opposition to DeSantis' parental rights bill. Then, on Thursday, Florida lawmakers approved a new congressional map proposed by the governor that is designed to add four Republican seats to the state's delegation in the House of Representatives. Democrats call it gerrymandering and will challenge the plan in court. And we'll look at the Supreme Court. Judge Jackson won't be seated as the newest Supreme Court justice until June or July when the court's current term comes to an end, which means... She won't weigh in on what may be one of the most critical decisions of recent years that is slated for this spring, whether to uphold or overturn the landmark abortion case Roe versus Wade. That decision could have enormous implications, not the least of which is whether it fires up the Democratic base in critical races, helping the Democrats in what currently looks like an uphill battle in November. Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics co-founder and President Tom Babin, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and associate editor and columnist A.B. Stoddard. So, Tom, uh, Ron DeSantis is making all sorts of moves. What is he up to? And is all this time in the political spotlight helping him as he looks to 2024 and a possible run for the presidency? Well, it's not hurting him, I don't think. I mean, DeSantis has been the object of attention.
1: The Democrats' attention, quite frankly, for some time. I mean, you, the way that they, the media treated him during COVID and and all of that, um, and he managed to come out looking fairly well. I think, when all is said and done, when you when you analyze the the COVID data, um, he has picked a fight. Well, actually, Disney was the one who picked the fight, uh, choosing to come out and be as vocally opposed to a law as as we've seen, and and DeSantis decided to to fight back. And the result of this, as you mentioned, was this law that was passed by the Florida House yesterday, which was going to be to DeSantis. It passed the Senate the day before. It's going to go to his desk for a signature, um, which is going to strip them of their special tax status that they've enjoyed in Florida for decades. And so this is definitely escalation, taking it to the next level. And I think, you know, it is going to be a topic of conversation. I mean, Republicans, conservatives, I think. Are applauding the move, at least some conservatives. And then you had Joe Biden saying yesterday at, at his fundraiser out in Portland, you know, Christ, they're attacking Mickey Mouse. So that that's going to be the the line of attack uh, from Democrats. And so this is an issue that is, in some ways, you know, the ball being moved down the field from what happened in Virginia. The supporters of the bill call it a, a parental rights bill, and the critics of the bill call it the "Don't Say Gay" bill. And folks are you know quick to point out that all it does is prohibit teachers from talking about, you know, gender identity and and sex ed be for, you know, kids, kindergarten through through third grade. So it is absolutely going to be a topic that both sides are going to try and leverage to their advantage in 2022. And certainly if DeSantis is on the ballot in 2024, it will be one of his uh,
0: strongest arguments that he'll put out there to say that he's a, he's a true conservative. So maybe, you know, it was Mitt Romney who reminded us that corporations are people too. They have rights. Uh <laughs> And I'm just wondering, is there a danger here where we use this uh, law that's totally unrelated to the issue at hand to punish a corporation for speaking out? Charles C.W. Cook at National Review, uh, who's a conservative, uh, wrote uh, this this week. He said, 50 years after its founding, Walt Disney World is deeply rooted in Florida soil as a result of agreements the Florida legislature made with it in good faith. To poison that soil over a temporary spat would be absurd. That's not fighting. It's a tantrum. That's what he says. What say you?
2: It's also not conservative. We have to start with the umbrella over all this. Is just that none of us know who is a conservative anymore, because if you're a supporter of Donald Trump, a conservative supports him, no matter what he says, how he says it, what day he says it, even when he called for a boycott against Harley Davidson, using the power of the government, the hand of the state to intrude in the private market is not conservative, and it's dangerous, and it's socialist. So that's why Governor Polis of Colorado called Governor DeSantis an authoritarian socialist. Raising taxes on Floridians because you're having a fight that might cost you a few um, Disney-supporting votes in Florida, but it's going to pick up more in the Iowa caucuses in a year and a half. I mean, in two years, there is a lot more to criticize, I think, than than to cheer. I, I know it's popular because culture wars are popular, but it's not conservative. And I think it's dangerous.
0: Carl, do the Democrats have an answer to DeSantis? Because I, I mean, I was looking, uh, and I want to ask Tom about this as well, but I was looking at the RCP average for the race. Uh, he's up uh, this fall in the governor's race, and he's up by an average of 8.8%. We have it sort of leaning DeSantis right now. Well, the Democrats could have an answer to DeSantis if they could beat him in Florida. <laughs> A lot of this would go
3: away and, uh, you know, the Republicans would have to reconsider. But if he wins, um, as Tom points out, uh, he, he's, you know, he's he's then then he's he's standing there and maybe the alternative um, to Donald Trump for Republicans who don't want um, the Trump baggage, but want some of the Trump uh, message. But, you know, A.B. mentioned the phrase culture war. Um, Andy and that that's what this is um and what wars are known for and we're seeing in real wars we're seeing this in Ukraine and we're seeing this elsewhere is is escalation collateral damage citizens get hurt I mean this don't say gay bill the parental rights bill was itself not you know textbook conservatism it's not you know this is this is the state telling every school board, And every teacher in the state, what's Florida now, the second, third largest, third largest, most popular state in the country, what they can teach. Um, There were some rogue teachers out there and, you know, libs of TikTok is always putting their stuff on the air, um, teaching children, you know, deeply irresponsible things. But there's a handful of teachers doing this. And that bill itself seems maybe overreach, an escalation to the problem in response the Democrats come up with this thoroughly dishonest and disingenuous "the Don't Say Gay" bill. It's 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 homophobic and it hates people. It's teaching hate. It's not teaching anything. It's basically telling teachers you can't teach, you can't talk about this subject till the kids are eight years old. It wasn't teaching hate. So that was that was another escalation. And and then and then so then what do the conservatives come back with? They don't like that "Don't Say Gay" bill. They shouldn't have liked it. It wasn't honest. So they come up with a equally dishonest and even more invidious thing. The Democrats are pedophile groomers. So then Disney enters the phrase. I I don't think corporations should even be involved in this kind of thing personally, but they get involved and they outlaw that you can't say boys and girls at Disney world anymore or Disneyland. You have to say friends. No ladies and gentlemen, the boys and girls. So this is a culture war, Andy, and there aren't peace talks going on. Let's put it that way. They don't even seem to be the adults in the room anymore when the Republicans and Democrats engage on our issues of culture, because these are things that thoughtful people work out in their families every day in their schools and try and deal with as best they can. Republicans, Democrats, that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to raise money and win elections.
1: Let, let me just add two quick things. Number one, I, I really don't think that it's just a couple of rogue teachers. I mean, in my hometown here in Evanston, Illinois, you know, we have LGBTQ equity week. It is, and it's not just going to be equity week or equity month. It's going to be woven throughout the curricula through the entire year. And it is starting in pre-K and going through eighth grade. And in second grade, you know, kids are taught to rewrite Cinderella. In first grade, they're taught about pronouns. I mean, we're we're kind of the tip of the spear here, you know, because it's such a liberal community and, and in terms of pushing this stuff. But make no mistake about it, Carl, this is not some... This is not some, you know, a couple of rogue teachers just going off and saying stuff. I mean, this is this is a serious, uh, you know, push by activists to make this happen. And so for that reason, the other thing that you mentioned, Tom, (laughs) Okay. Okay. the second thing I'll mention is A.B. said it's not conservative to, you know, fight back against a corporation, um, use the hand of the government to strip tax status or any sort of favorable things. I don't necessarily agree with that either. I mean, we we live in a different reality now. I mean, things have changed a lot just in the last couple of years. I mean, we did not see, it's a relatively new development um, to have corporations weighing in on state and local legislation like they did in Georgia, like they did in in other places. And and so I think the ballgame has changed and now you've got Republicans who are because they're on the receiving end of this. The corporations have all gone woke. I mean, there's no corporation out there arguing basically in favor of conservative positions. It's all pushing the sort of left wing uh, talking points and agendas. And to Carl's point, I mean, this, this idea they said, you know, labeling it the don't say gay bill, a masterstroke of marketing, even though it's completely disingenuous. And that was also uh, being pushed. So I think we're in a different environment now. And, and it may not have been, quote unquote, conservative, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago. But I do think uh, it's a different world now. And I also think that there is a conservative element to this, which is the idea of crony capitalists and like the, the you know, corporate windfalls that, that these uh, corporations have, have gotten. Now you've got Democrats defending that, Republicans against it. Republicans have become the party of sort of the blue collar working class protecting, you know, Joe Q, average Joe Q uh, and Sally Q public. And Democrats are the ones arguing for big corporations, more censorship by big tech. I mean, it's it's a it's a <laughs> things have changed a lot just in the last few years.
0: I just want to talk about the gerrymandering uh, that's going on in Florida, if that's the right term. I guess it depends on, again, on where you sit on this stuff. But
3: wait, um, wait, Andy, we can use the term gerrymandering. Let's just <laughs> both both parties do it and they're doing it in every state. I hope I, we're safe ground there.
0: All right. Well, good. You know, I, I'm always trying to be uh, real and clear here. So, Carl, you know, this uh, this new plan does look like it gives the GOP four additional seats in Florida. I think right now they need five to pick up and control the House. So is this another potential big win for DeSantis? I mean, if he can deliver four seats in the House. Well, yeah, sure. But the Democrats can challenge us in court and these are all being challenged. But remember, the Democrats picked up
3: seats earlier this year in Illinois and New York. Um but uh, even more than the, I think, four, uh, three in New York, a couple in Illinois, Tom might know. Um, but so this is what's going on. The Democratic controlled states are drawing weird, bizarre district lines. And the Republicans are doing the same thing. Andy, I got to Washington in the, in the 1980s. There was a guy. He was like, uh, he was literally like my godfather's name was Phil Burton. I walked precincts for him when I was in my pram, when I was, I was actually in a stroller. So I wasn't walking in San Francisco. He was a, he was a
1: lefty Democrat. Right. He was like, he was a congressman was in the California. Election right? of 1864. What was <laughs> right.
3: it? Yes. Right. Larger than life person, Phil Burton. He drew a district in San Francisco for his own brother, John Burton. And he bragged to me and turned out to others. He said, yes, you, to, to, to campaign in that district, you need a boat. He said it was along the San Francisco Bay search for Democrats. He said it weaves in and out like a snake. And he was proud of it. And look, that's been going on now 40 years. And for Democrats to suddenly, I mean, it's worse than that scene in Casablanca. I'm shocked, shocked that there's uh, people are drawing partisan lines. The courts, some states, California itself has reformed, Iowa is maybe the model, you know, but the states where it hasn't happened, you're trying to squeeze every single district. So I, yeah, and DeSantis, he'll get some credit for that. But this goes on everywhere. It's terrible for democracy, in my view.
0: It will end someday,
3: but it hasn't ended yet.
0: A.B., is it this just politics as, as usual down there? I mean, they are picking up a, an additional seat overall uh, due to population growth.
2: You know, I'm not a student of how much the map has changed in each state in this current redistricting battle. I do know that they have been challenged in court and and that some of the maps have been tossed um, by judges this season. I don't know what will happen to Florida. I think that any attempt to increase their hold on power is a political winner for Ron DeSantis with Republican voters. No question. The thing that everyone listening to this podcast should care more about and what very few Americans uh, understand, and the people listening to this podcast do understand it, but many, many, most Americans do not, is how much redistricting is really going to just sort of paralyze the government. I mean, if you think the government's paralyzed now, the, the both parties in their in their gerrymandering are complicit in, in taking away competitive seats. And when we send people to Washington who have no competition against the other party, and are just fighting with extremes in their primary battles, they will only vote yes and only vote no when they get here, depending on which party is in power. And um, there's no power of persuasion anymore. And the Congress will not reflect the majority of the voters in this country at all. That's it. No matter how things change, Tom's talking about change. You look at change and opinion on, you know, let's say, Republicans have come around on same-sex marriage and they've come around on the climate and you need to deal with it different ways than Democrats want. But, yes, we need to address it. Yes, policy positions shift. But what gerrymandering is going to do to the structure of our system is so incredibly malignant. And it's just really only something that the kind of politically engaged or addicted understand. Uh, and 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 it's uh, it, I, I really, truly believe that those out there who, you know, really want to help this country and really want to put their money in the right place instead of, I don't know, Republicans and Democrats in Congress who are supporting corporations who have the wrong messaging, mostly Republicans, by the way. Um, I do think that, you know, that's really one of the biggest threats that faces us is the redistricting game it's it's just incredible the amount of of competitive seats if you look at the the data and I don't have it fresh on top of mind um that have shrunk cycle to cycle uh is 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 staggering and it's well, it's headed uh, in one direction it's on one trajectory
3: ab andy's um podcasting today from the eastern shore of maryland there's one republican district in maryland a state that you know Probably ought to have two or three. It's got one. It, the district goes up from the eastern shore of Maryland, takes a right turn. Not <laughs> not the bridge, not the bridge. <laughs> takes a right turn, goes up the western Maryland. I think it goes. I think it goes to Hagerstown. And
0: yeah. The, the, yeah, this is Democrats this is uh, the first district of Maryland. Yeah,
3: yeah, the first district of Maryland is one of the worst lines in the country. In Baltimore, the Democrats got together. They basically tried to put every Republican in the state in one district. You you can't do that, but they came close. So. And, and of course, he turns out to be not a typical, not like Governor Hogan, not a moderate Republican. He's very right wing Republican because there's only Republicans in his district, and he just doesn't want to get primary to your, to your point. So, and that's that's in state after state around the country, and
2: that's and both point. parties do it. That's right. right.
0: Well, you know, A.B., talking about things not getting done, uh, you had an interesting piece uh, this week in RCP saying that, in your view, the Democrats are unlikely to get another Supreme Court nominee through anytime soon. What are the implications of uh, of the changes we've seen in the nomination process uh, going forward?
2: Well, Andy, thank you. I don't get too much into the Hunger Games of the nominating process, the confirmation <laughs> process in the piece because I really wanted to focus more on um, where the Democrats have sort of left themselves in terms of getting people seated on the court um, that they want. Both parties are complicit, as I note in the piece, in kind of how ugly it's gotten and how they've really indulged their partisan priorities and they've really soiled the process. But Mitch McConnell choosing in 2016 to just not even provide um, a, a hearing for Merrick Garland, who was considered then a, a moderate pick after Hagan and Kagan, sorry, and um, Sotomayor, um, it, it really changed the game in that his recent remarks following the confirmation of just soon-to-be Justice Jackson indicate that he will use the same rule, the McConnell rule in 2024 in an election year. He didn't have to use it in 2020 to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Amy Coney Barrett because it was the same party in the White House that controlled the Senate. So it wasn't like when he had to deny President Obama the opportunity to energize his base in an open election year where they wanted the Democrats to succeed him. So he, in, in an, again, when this same um, paradigm is set up, in 2024, opposite parties controlling Senate White House, he's going to have to have the same rule and not allow a hearing. And when asked about next year, should a vacancy arise, he refuses to comment. He refuses to commit to, seat it, to, to, to confer, even allowing the confirmation process next year. Should Biden have an opportunity to name a new, um, nominate a new judge? So if you combine that my thesis is that for Democrats, they are up against a wall that could go for decades. Jackson's the first in 12 years. It could go for another 25. It could go for another 14. The reason is if you combine the GOP plan that they're now very vocal about, and it was backed up by uh, Grassley and, and and Graham, the top judiciary guys who handled the most recent and, and the future nomination If you combine that with population trends and voting trends that favor Republicans in the Senate and will provide a near-term lockout for Democrats in the the Senate, Um, the fact that ticket-splitting voting is going away, and it's going to be very hard for Sherrod Brown and John Tester to survive in 2024 in red states as red state Democrats, maybe not for Joe Manchin that ticket splitting is on the decline. And so if you then look at these sort of census population projections that some of these, you know, nerdy um, scholars do, and I cited uh, University of Virginia's, um, they are looking at these models and, and, and telling Democrats that with population transition into the most populous states, The nine most populous states will be represented in 2040 by less than a quarter of the seats in the Senate. That's a lot of information to take in. The most important thing, if you're listening to this, is that the structural bias favors Republicans winning and holding power in the Senate and controlling the confirmation process. It is their main priority. They have organized and planned around it and fundraised and recruited for it for years. The Democrats have never prioritize the court and if they're wondering how they've gotten themselves into this semi-quasi-permanent long-term minority on the judiciary this is why and it's going to last for the reasons that i detail in the piece
0: well tom this sounds like a brief for uh packing the court doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of doesn't it? isn't that the it sounds like that's the only the only uh only way out if you're a democrat correct uh we'll see
1: we'll see i mean republicans are going to probably win the senate this november i think that's a, that's a very likely outcome and as ab mentions the the next map doesn't look very great for them either and so even if they did manage to to win uh, the presidency in 2024 they might still not win back control of the of the senate which would put them in a exact situation that she mentioned so I disagree a little bit that the Democrats haven't ever prioritized the court. I mean, the Democrats have been talking about the Supreme Court for a very long time. They they use it as a political issue as much and as as effectively as Republicans do in terms of campaigns. And they certainly have been every bit as ruthless, uh, if not more ruthless, if you look at, you know, the way that that. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh was treated during his confirmation hearings. Um and I know AB said she didn't get into the the Hunger Games aspect of that. But certainly that is a I think Democrats have demonstrated that they're willing to do just about whatever they need to to protect their majorities in the court or or, you know, try and keep Republican majorities on the court to to an absolute minimum. So, but it is it is absolutely true. I mean, Republicans have had They've had a good run on the Supreme Court. It has worked out well for them over uh, the course of the last few decades to the point where they're now in a pretty strong position and, and likely to stay that way for some time.
3: I'd make a couple of points. Uh, the first is that w- what McConnell did while not allowing vote on Merrick Garland, that, to my way of thinking, he's um, a- a- right, it, it escalated things in a way that changed the nature of it. It was a new, it was a kind of a new weapon, actually. Um, but the Democrats did things in the eighties and nineties and, and they did it to Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, every Republican in the Senate would tell you that they think Bob Bork, Clarence Thomas, and Brett Kavanaugh were slandered and smeared by the democratic machine. And the press went along with it. They, 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 they feel it was unjust and ugly and unfair and they, they, if, you, if, you, if you ask them about it, they'd say they were slow to respond to this to this new dynamic that the Democrats had introduced, which was character assassination, and trying to get um, appointments stalled. So that's their side of that argument. Um, what you have now is complete dysfunction. Brown, this newest appointment by Biden, if I was a Republican in the Senate, it would have been an easy vote for me to confirm her. She's an African-American woman. She, she made a g- good appearance before the committee. Um, she had some sentencing decisions as a judge that were liberal, but she's a liberal person. I mean, and they weren't, they weren't, instead they, they call her, what do they call her? Uh, easy on pedophiles and drug dealers. I mean, that's not less ugly than the stuff that was said about, you know, Bob Bork. It's the same thing. So the Republicans are now behaving like that. they've become what they said they hate. And that, that often happens. The other, but the uh, and the and other point I would make, AB's column, I, I urge everyone to read it. I edited it. Um, I even inadvertently contributed to it because I, I took out a paragraph she wrote a few weeks ago by mistake, and and then I meant to show it to her, and instead it just got excess from the column. And when I understood what she was saying, and she explained to me after the piece was published, I said, "Well, A.B., that's a hell of an idea that you, you should do a whole separate column on that." <laughs> so, and she did, and it's good. But but having said all that, you know, these predictions we make, even about the next election, let alone. 10 years out, things can happen. Uh, I knew a guy, smart political reporter. Uh, he, he wrote a book called Minority Party, Why Democrats Face Defeat in 1992 and Beyond. Um, the book came out and, uh, the, the, the cover was an elephant overwhelming a donkey. Well, Bill Clinton was elected, you know, a year later and, the Democrats have won, you know, five of the ensuing eight presidential elections. They now control both houses of Congress. So, you know, things happen, dynamics change. Parties change in response. Um, or parties typically on the hill overplay their hand and the republic and the voters have to issue the slap of a corrective. So think the way things look now, we don't always know even even the smartest political writers and the smartest political scientists have trouble predicting the future. I would just throw that caveat out there.
0: Well, yes, yes. Yogi Berra did say it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. So, uh, But predictions is kind of part of our game here, so uh, it's kind of unavoidable. And I do want to talk a little bit about this uh, massively important decision that's coming up uh, in the Supreme Court before the term ends. The term ends in June and July. Uh, it's Dobbs versus Jackson's Women the Health. It's a case out of Mississippi. The court is taking up. And it's really the first direct challenge to, to Roe versus Wade. And some people feel, A.B., that this will energize the Democratic base and may help them in the midterms.
2: Well, they, we don't have evidence from the gubernatorial elections in New Jersey and Virginia late last year that the texas ban uh, energized any kind of uh, volunteer door-knocking campaigning or fundraising or giving or anything like that but that's obviously different than a supreme court you know decimation of roe this close to the election that said um, i really don't know that the people who will be the most upset about this, uh, I don't know who they are. They're either going to be women over the age of, you know, who are in their 60s and 70s, who are regular voters, who get really angry, never thought they would see this in their lifetime, remember when there was, uh, you know, remember the, the, the before times or something, or there's going to be, a, a response from young voters, um, particularly women, those are not the types I, I believe who are politically engaged anyway and even know what a midterm election is. It's really hard to know right now who the average American is in terms of voting and news consumption and engagement. So I while we're just looking at this issue, assuming it's going to light a fire against Republicans, because all these people are going to get really mad. I I would have believed that maybe a couple of years ago, but I, I don't anymore. I think there's a lot of disengagement from politics and from the news. And I think that there is not likely to be the response that the Democrats are hoping for.
0: Well, Tom, I mean, just take New Hampshire as an example, because it's not Virginia. Maggie Hassan is up there. Uh, she's expected to be in a pretty tough, t- tough, race. Here's what her campaign is saying about this. She, they're saying our campaign is already talking to granite staters directly about the contrast between Senator Hassan's staunch support for, for reproductive health care with her opponents record eviscerating women's liberty. They think there's some payoff here and in a state like New Hampshire, in a toss up state, couldn't this be the kind of issue that would make a difference? Perhaps, but I agree with AB. I think it's
1: undetermined. Um, and certainly you know, Maggie Hassan wants to talk about anything other than inflation and the economy, because that's what, you know, that's where Democrats have their biggest troubles. I mean, it is a by far two to one, two and a half, three to one, the most important issue on the minds of voters, meaning inflation, unless Democrats come up with an answer for that, they're going to pay a price. And I don't think that Roe v. Wade decision, it may energize some folks, uh, it, may, it may cause that issue to rise in the minds of Democrats and maybe even some independents and swing voters uh, to a certain degree. But is it going to really drive people to the polls more than five dollar gas and double digit you know grocery increases and the like? I doubt it. The other issue, since you brought up Maggie Hassan, I mean, she was just a, she was just in Texas making videos at the border about border security and the issue of immigration and Title 42, which is coming up next month is really exposing a rift among the Democrats at at the worst possible time. I mean, uh, you know, you have all of these quote unquote centrist Democrats, right? Um, Mark Kelly in Arizona, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, but even Raphael Warnock. And we've talked about this before. I mean, he's no raging centrist. I mean, this is a man of the left and he Mm -hmm. is opposed to the administration's position on title 42. So, uh, but at the end of the day, I, I, I do think, Look, this is all about the economy. This is all about inflation, and and I think Democrats in these states are going to find themselves trying to, I think, thread the needle between uh, talking, trying to localize these elections, trying to talk about issues that that play in their favor. But they do that, you know, to the extent they do that, um, there's an 800 pound gorilla in the room, and they have to address it somehow. Hmm. And, and it'll be interesting to see how they do that. Hmm.
0: Well, Carl, I'm going to give you the last word or try to give you the last Damn word. Damn it, we'll Andy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ended well, right well, there. That was just my, my...
3: It, was, semi, it was good. Semi-brilliant, Tom. I, 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> However, look, the, Andy, I just,
0: I, it, I just, want, me, I just yeah. want to take one more stab at this, which is because yeah. I think it's stunning that neither A.B. nor Tom Babin believe that an that overturning Roe v. Wade won't be a major election issue in the fall. That 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 may be true, but five years ago, ten years ago, if you had told me that, I would say you're that that's not possible. Well, Andy, me- I
2: could I could be wrong. I just I don't predict the response of the quote voters anymore.
3: Okay. Well, here's here's my view of that. I, there's there are very few. Most Americans are not one issue voters, and the ones that are on abortion. On the pro-life side or the uh, right, on the pro-choice side, they, they vote Democrat and Republican respectively. That's what they do. The question is, what will this? Is this an issue that animate swing voters? Um not you remember all those
0: pink hats and all that well, stuff? It,
3: I mean, come on. Well, I think it might, and I'll tell you why. The, the what, what the two parties are battling right now, when it comes to independent voters, is the perception that they are extreme, and there's evidence that they are. So when you know, most Americans aren't, despite what Tom said about what's going on in the Evanston schools, when Americans, when most Americans hear about uh, teaching transgenderism to kindergartners, they, yeah, they don't think it's a great idea. But when Democrats defend that, the Democrats look like they're captured by an extreme element in their own party, of, of the far left. And I, what the abortion issue does to me, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, the Supreme Court with judges appointed by Republican presidents and confirmed by Republican Senate will have taken away what the Supreme court had previously decided 50 years ago was a constitutional right. And they, the, the danger is that the Republicans look extreme on it. So I ginning up the base. Yeah, they got to do that on their own. And that's what Maggie Sands trying to do. She's trying to get, but, but it's, but, but swing voters who have put aside inflation for a moment, Tom, because, They've already factored that in and they're still undecided. They don't want one party to be they don't want either one of these two extreme parties to get too much power. And and so it's a bank shot I'm talking about. There's a perception problem for the Republican Party. I, I believe if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that they're that they've feared too far to that side, that they've. So in that sense, I think it could be a dispositive, especially in states like New Hampshire, swing states where voters are highly engaged in
1: both the issues. Maybe, although I'll I'll reiterate what A.B. said earlier, you know, this Texas ban didn't seem to motivate anyone. You've got Republican states all across the country. Florida just passed a 15 week ban uh, the other day. You've got, you know, states, Republican red states across the country are are passing bills, uh, pro-life bills. In, in advance of anticipating that, that Roe v. Wade probably will be struck down in, in part or in whole. And so there doesn't seem to be any evidence as of yet that that's motivating uh, electors, but those aren't necessarily the states that you're talking about. Maybe in a place where, you know, Arizona is a 50 50 state and, and Nevada is a 50 50 state and and New Hampshire is a place where, um, you know, that's a state Biden won by seven points and Catherine Cortez, mouse, I'm sorry, uh, Maggie Hassan right now is running you know, in a dead heat at 45% with three Republicans nobody's ever heard of. So, um, you know, will it, could it help boost her there? Possibly. We'll have to wait and see. And I get the last word.
2: <laughs> oh, he's, I don't know. No, no, I'm not asking the last word. I was just, I was just no. going to note that Carl's word was not last.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. So I want to thank A.B. Stoddard, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevin. We're usually here... Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form or fashion. Bookmark this podcast. Check back often. Always interesting to see who gets the last word. Um, Of course, I always do get the last (laughs) word, but I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics. Read at least one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Um, That may be A.B. Stoddard this week. Uh, You never know. And check out uh, the Real Clear Defense podcast Hot Wash uh, for more insight into the situation in Ukraine. We didn't talk about Ukraine this week on this podcast, but you can always find out uh, what's going on by checking out uh, Hot Wash. And thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.